turn to Acts chapter 2. We're in the middle of a series going through the, uh, the book of Acts. And uh, in the series, he reigns. We're looking at the sovereignty of God and the gospel in the book of Acts. So as you're turning there, and you don't have a Bible, uh, it'll also be on the screen here for you. I'm going to go ahead and grab my coat because I'm stopped up today, and so if my voice starts going, I'm, gonna, I'm not trying to be rude, but I'm, I may just have to have a swig of my coat here on the while I'm preaching, all right? But go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2, uh, and we're going to start at verse 14. Now, we've been in this section, verses 14 through 41. We've been in it already for two weeks, and we're going to spend the third week in it now. Because this sermon that Peter delivers on the day of Pentecost is a very important sermon. And in this sermon, we uh, uh, we just couldn't take it, get it all done. We couldn't get Peter's sermon done in one sermon here. So we're taking four sermons to go through Peter's one sermon, all right? So, but I'm going to read the whole sermon, starting in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. The Word of God says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, or and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor, and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. <coughs> Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, in, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand, and God made your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you'd open up our hearts and our minds. God, we are blinded because we are sinners, and we are deaf because we are sinners. Apart from your work of your Holy Spirit to come and to open up eyes and to open up ears, we can't even begin to get anything out of this passage today. So God, we invite you, we ask Holy Spirit, come and do a heart work inside of us. Help us to see your word. Help us to respond to your word. Help us to apply it however you want us to apply it in. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just uh, come to this passage that particularly focuses on the resurrection, Lord. Um, I'm just filled with a certain amount of uh, oh, just dread, God, because I can't do the resurrection justice. Just trying to do a sermon about the resurrection, just, it's almost overwhelming because of what you did and the amazing miracle of the resurrection and what was accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So God, I pray that you'd help us today. I pray that you'd be honored by what we're doing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are in our series called He Reigns. And uh, today we get to the section, that the particular section of this sermon that we're focusing on today uh, is actually starts in verse, excuse me, verse uh, after we read verse 22 through 24 last week, we started verse 25 today. And we go down all the way to verse 36. So that's the section we're focusing on today. And Peter's particularly going to focus on, on the Messiah, the proof of the Messiah that he's risen from the grave. The fact that he's Messiah because he's risen from the grave. Now I was trying to think of something about proof. The thing about proving something. How do we prove something has happened? And so I've got um, two matchbox here, and I've got a question for the kids. How could I, how could I prove? Think of some ways I could prove that this matchbox has matches in it. You could open it up. I could open it up. Okay. What are some other ways I could prove, or try to prove, investigate this matchbox and see if it has? Shake it. Shake it. Okay. I could shake it. So let's shake this one. And kids, you tell me if it's got matches in it. What do you think? Think so? You're, you're kind of skeptic there. I, I would guess so. All right. Okay, so the believes there's matches in this one here. Okay, so now let's do this one here. Okay? Again, let's try the same test that Olivia suggested for shaking it, right? What would you say? There's matches in it. All right? You see, Jesus has died and he was buried. Okay, everyone in Jerusalem knew what had happened. Even if they were just there visiting for the Pentecost festivals. Uh, festivities. They they were there, but they had known about it. They had heard about it. Everyone knew about it. So everyone had heard the story of what had happened, right? And the proof seemed to be pretty irrefutable that this Jesus had died. But at least 500 people, and definitely the 120 who were there at the day of Pentecost, 
do otherwise because what's what's the better proof, Andrew? You mentioned it earlier. Opening it up. So open this box and tell me if there's matches in it. It sure seems like there's matches in it. There are matches in it. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, uh, Garrett, when you open this box and tell me if there's matches in it. Okay. Is there any matches in it? No. Okay. All right. Now, let me see the box again. Hold on a second here. Are you sure there's a match in it? Try that again. Would you shake that for me? What's the problem here? Shake it again. Oh, all right. Well, uh, who are you going to believe? Hush, <laughs> hush. Hush adults, okay? <laughs> now, not saying anything. Not saying anything, Mark. And here, you can keep the box for you years later. You're going to do this illustrations. All right. Now, Gary, okay, maybe some people had heard that some stuff had happened, some stuff was going on. Maybe they even heard that he had risen from the grave. But there were these people there at the day of Pentecost that knew for sure he had risen from the grave. Why? Because they had what? <coughs> they had seen him. They were witnesses. That's what Peter's going to say here in a minute. I, we're all witnesses that this Jesus has risen from the grave. We are witnesses. Now this section that we're going to look at here, Peter is trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He's not trying to prove that he's risen from the grave. He already, he says, I'm a witness of that. Matter of fact, there was no question about that because the people could ask any of the people that actually physically seen Jesus or they could go examine the what? They can go open up that grave and look and see that it was empty. So we're talking about proof today, but the main thing that, that Peter's trying to prove is not that Jesus had risen from the grave. He's trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who was promised to come and to be the Savior of all the people of Israel and of the whole world. So we're in a series, like I said, called He Reigns. The title of today's message is The Gospel, God's Plan from the Beginning, Part 3. So this is kind of a mini-series within a series as we go through this sermon. And uh, last week we looked at how, uh, well two weeks ago we looked at how Peter had stood up and began to defend what the people were seeing. And he quoted a passage from Joel chapter 2 verses 28 and 32. And he quotes this passage and basically what he says by quoting that passage is, Guys, these are the last days. And that's what you're seeing here. This Holy Spirit that has come in a special and mighty way. This is because we are in the last days. And all the people knew if we're in the last days, and that means something. That means what? It means the Messiah has come. And so the next thing Peter does is what we looked at last week. He begins to show the people he begins to unmask for them who this Messiah is. And he, he, taught, he tells them that God has showcased and endorsed Jesus as Messiah. That God has demonstrated and proved through mighty works that Jesus is is Messiah, that God had planned and ordained Jesus' death on the cross before the world ever began, and that we were actually all guilty of crucifying and killing Jesus because of our sin, but then God vindicated and raised Jesus, proving that he's the Messiah. And so that last point is so important, that God raised him up, that now Peter goes into an explanation of that. Let's talk about that a little bit, about this raising him up. So Peter goes into more depth here on this last point because it's so vital. It's so vital. The resurrection is absolutely vital 
to our faith. Without it, we have no faith. If you're here this morning and you say, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I just don't know if I can buy this resurrection thing. That your faith, according to the scriptures, is void then. It's nil and void. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything if you don't actually believe in the resurrection. There's a lot of people who will deny the physical resurrection of Christ. And they'll say, well, he, he kind of rose as some sort of spirit being or something and, and presented himself almost like a ghost to his disciples or whatever. But that, again, if that's your view of the resurrection, according to the scriptures, it's completely insufficient. And your faith is void. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words... If we don't believe that Jesus physically rose from the grave, there's no need for me to do what I'm doing right here. And there's no need for you to even believe it. So this key element of what Jesus accomplished, this resurrection, is so important to our faith. Peter knew how vital the resurrection was, so he goes into Psalm 16. He brings up Psalm 16 to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Here's that section of scripture that we read a minute ago. Verses 25 to 28. Peter's quoting Psalm 16. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. So Peter now will take that little passage of Scripture and begin to break it down and do a little expository preaching here in the next few verses. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh corruption. Now this psalm here that Peter quotes again, it's not trying to prove that Jesus is alive. What he's doing is he's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So imagine Peter, after the after the, uh, uh, the resurrection of Christ, and Jesus has uh, appeared to his disciples for 40 days, and then he, he ascends back to the Father and he tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. During that time, the Bible tells us, you remember we read it at the very beginning of Acts, that they they were, they were together in prayer. They spent a lot of time in prayer. And of course, the best way to spend time in prayer is to spend it in conjunction with God's Word. So, I don't know. I'm just kind of guessing here. But they were probably just pouring over the Scriptures as they prayed. Because Jesus has already told them, all the Old Testament, all the Scriptures, point to me. So now they see this risen Lord. He's ascended to the Father. And they know that all the Scriptures point to Him. So they're going back and they're reading through passage of the scripture going, wow, there, now I see it. Now I see Jesus here. Now I see Jesus here. Now I see Jesus here. So perhaps this is the fruit of that. But here they are. He pulls Psalm 16 out and says to them that this is a proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Now there's a lot of Psalms like this. There's a lot of passages like this in the Old Testament. They kind of have a double meaning. Could it have been intended for David when David actually wrote that? Possibly, but it seems to have a fuller meaning or a bigger meaning. There's other passages like this as well. Psalm 22. Okay, David was writing that during a time of distress that he was personally going through. But if you read that psalm, it sounds like an eyewitness account of the resurrection. I mean, of the, of the crucifixion. 
So there are passages of scripture that have a prophetic meaning beyond what was actually happening in David's life. And this is one of those passages that has this prophetic meaning. It has a greater fulfillment. It's pointing towards David's descendant, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, but Peter, <coughs> Peter, he knows, as he reads this passage of scripture, like Jesus said, that all the scriptures, all of them point to him. They all bear witness about him. And so he sees this, and he, here's his argument. Let's write down what his argument is here. Okay? So if you look at the text here, first thing he says, that David speaks about always being in God's right, having God in his right hand, and never being shaken. Okay? So, so Peter reads this. David said, hey, I'm never going to be shaken. I have God in my right hand. Okay? So if you look at it there, the, the first word of verse 36 is therefore. Okay? So he's, he's not going to be shaken. God's in his right hand. Therefore, what? My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, and my flesh will also dwell in hope. So because he knows God's in his right hand, it results in hope. But what's his hope in? His hope is that he won't be abandoned to the grave and that he wouldn't see corruption. You see, every human being is built with a hope in their heart that there's something beyond. There's something after this life. There's something different. There's something beyond this existence that we have here. And that's why people come up with all, all kinds of religions to try to explain something beyond this world. And so David had a hope, and it was a right place hope. It was a hope in God. But his hope is that he won't be abandoned to the grave and that he wouldn't see corruption, which ends up being the path to life. Okay, right there, verse 28. You may know to be the paths of life and the fullness of gladness in your presence. So the greatest thing in the world for David is to not have to die, but instead to be able to be with God, to have gladness in his presence. That's the greatest hope that we all can have. So David's looking forward to this. But the problem is David died. And his body did see corruption. Matter of fact, his grave was visible for everyone to look at right then and there. David did see corruption. He did die. So what is this he's speaking of then? What is this hope then? You see, David knew that God had promised and always keeps his promises that one of his descendants would reign forever. One of his descendants being the Messiah. So Peter looks at that and says, wait a second. David, yeah, David had this hope, but he knew that the hope wouldn't be fulfilled in him. He knew that that hope would be fulfilled somewhat with someone else. There'd be another person who wouldn't see corruption who wouldn't die, that would be able to be that person who would be a path to life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So in verse 32, he simply says, hey, it's happened, guys. Jesus, this Jesus God raised up, and of that, we are all witnesses. And as I mentioned earlier, Peter was a witness of this resurrected Christ. He's saying, listen, it's happened. David couldn't accomplish this song. Jesus has accomplished it. He's risen. And of that, we're all witnesses. Notice he doesn't go into a long discussion of saying, hey, let me prove to you that Jesus is empty. Let's all walk over to the grave. Because you know what? For the people there, they knew that tomb was empty. They had all heard about it. They all knew what was going on. And Peter says, hey, we're witnesses. We've seen him alive. Now, if you want to go to 1 Corinthians 15, we're not going to do it this morning. You can read a long section about the resurrection of Christ. And in there, from verses 3 through 7, they have a list of all the, the, the over 500 people that saw Jesus alive. Now, they don't list them all by name. 
But they list some of them, like Peter and others. But they just say, hey, there were 500 people that saw Jesus alive. So Peter's not worried about proving that Christ is alive. That's a historical fact. What he's working on here is proving that Jesus is the one, the Messiah, the Christos. So here's the questions I want to ask us this morning. What did God do for Jesus through the resurrection, thus proving once and for all that he is the Christ? So there's, there's four things I hear, that I see here in this passage that God did for Jesus that proves he was the Messiah. The first thing is that the empty tomb shows Jesus was vindicated. The empty tomb shows that Jesus was vindicated. As Peter read there, he says he was not abandoned. You see, the greatest argument that all the Pharisees and the rulers had when they came, they looked at Jesus on the cross. you guys remember what they would say to Jesus? They said things like, hey, he, he saved others, but he can't save himself. If you really are, if you really are the Son of God, why don't you just come on down? Why don't you just get off the cross? In other words, they were taunting him, saying, you're not the Messiah. You're not the promised one. You can't be. Because God has abandoned you to nails and a cross and a grave. That was their strongest argument. And that argument was totally obliterated three days later when that tomb broke open. And they knew it was obliterated. And that's why they began to spin. They're like politicians, right? They start spinning it, okay? Here's the situation. They get their press secretary out there to explain, okay, yes, there's no tomb, and our soldiers that we put there ran away like little babies, but and they began to say that the disciples had stolen the body. Okay, so they knew that if this Christ was abandoned, well, then he really wasn't the Christ. He really wasn't. He really wasn't God's son. But God didn't abandon him. You remember Satan tried to kind of tempt Jesus to think that way. Remember in the in the uh, in the desert, when Jesus being being tempted, he tries to get in the very first thing he says. He tries to get him to turn what bread into stone. No, no, that's what some women do when they cook bread. No, they turn stones into bread. Okay, not my wife. She makes great bread. It's never as hard as stone. All right, never. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> this wasn't a time. This is, not the, this is a couple's therapy, alright? We're making you pray. That's right. <laughs> uh, Store bought's good anyway. Uh, so, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So he's tempting Jesus to turn these stones into bread. And what does he say? He says, If you are the Son of God. And what he's trying to get Jesus to do is to forget that God is his provider and to no longer trust God as his provider. And to begin to feel what? Abandoned. When do we begin to take things into our own hands? Whether it be financially or whether it be a situation with our kids or whatever. We begin to take things into our own hands when we begin to doubt and fear that God's actually going to take care of us. And we begin to think that we've been abandoned. But Jesus has not been abandoned. He was not abandoned on the cross. He was never abandoned. He always had that perfect relationship with his Father. So in verse 32 we see... That after God had crushed the son, which he promised he would do in Isaiah, he would crush his own son. He also raises him up. This Jesus God raised up. He vindicated Jesus. He said, I'm crushing my son, not because I'm abandoning him. I'm crushing my son for my glory and to pay the price of the sins of all who come to him. I'm crushing my son, but not because I'm leaving him and I'm abandoning him. Instead, he vindicated him 
when he rose up, when God raised him from the dead, as we read of in verse 32. The Messiah had not been abandoned to death, and he would not see the corruption. Why did death have no hold over him? We read that last week in verse 24. Why does death have no hold over him? Because Jesus was perfect. He was without sin. You see, David wrote, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your what? Your Holy One see corruption. The reason all of us end up going to the grave and our bodies do end up seeing corruption is because each and every one of us have sinned. But Jesus didn't see any corruption. Even the three days he was in the tomb, his body saw no corruption. It did not decay because death had no authority over Jesus, no authority over his flesh, no authority over him at all. And so God raised him up and vindicated him and said, listen, this son of mine is perfect. He's never sinned. And I'm showing you that he is perfect by raising him from the dead. He was shown to be perfect. He was vindicated. He was shown to be holy for all mankind to see. The empty tomb demonstrates that the sacrifice of Jesus was complete and total and that it was accepted. He was sinless. He was the spotless lamb that we, read of, that we sang about earlier. He was given to the sins of the world and his work was finished. The sacrifice was accepted. So Christ was then raised and vindicated and the tomb was left open so everyone could see that this Jesus was indeed the Messiah and that his work was indeed accepted by the Father. And because he was vindicated, and because he was vindicated, he was exalted. Because he was vindicated, he was exalted. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He was exalted at the right hand of God. He is now the firstborn from the dead. No other man has done what Jesus has done. He has been exalted above all other men. Yet, there were other biblical resurrections, weren't there? Uh, how about Lazarus? You see, Lazarus rose again. Jesus raised him from the dead. But what happened to Lazarus? Is he still alive today? No, he died again. He died again. Okay? There are other examples of biblical resurrections. But this Jesus, this resurrection of Jesus is special. He's above all men. He's exalted. He now stands separate. He stands as the first fruit, the firstborn from the dead. Revelation 1 5 calls Jesus the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Colossians 1 15 says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Here it is, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's exalted. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This Jesus has been exalted. He's been shown to be holy and righteous in his head over all. And again, Peter uses King David's prophetic words as evidence. Okay? Acts chapter 2, verse 34, he reads another psalm of David's. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Again, David is not just speaking about himself. 
David speaking about someone beyond himself. Again, David is dead. His tomb's right there in Jerusalem for everyone to see. He did not rise. He did not ascend. But Jesus did to the right hand. The right hand is that power of uh, position of power subservient only to God the Father. Jesus now sits at the Father's right hand because he completed the perfect work that he was sent to do. Philippians 2, 8-9 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was the mission. That was what he was sent to do. And therefore, verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The next thing I want us to see, and because he is the exalted one, he is victorious. Because he is the exalted one, he is victorious. Look at verses 34 to 35. Did David, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord sit, said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. What enemies? What enemies were made a footstool of Jesus? Well, first of all, all mankind... Because of our sin, according to the scripture, are enemies of God. We, we've declared war on God through our sin. We've become enemies of God. Therefore, Jesus, by defeating sin, has put his enemies under his foot. They've become his footstool. He has a victory over them. Now, for those who have accepted him, who've received him, you know what? He's been victorious by dealing with our sin on the cross through his blood. Therefore, he's had victory over his enemies. He's had victories over the sin. But for those who did not accept him, who never received him, the eternal punishment is the victory over their sin. Choose your victory. Regardless, God will be victorious. Jesus will be victorious over his enemies. He's victorious over the enemy of death. He's victorious over the enemy of sin. And he's victorious over Satan and his demons. Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's victory. Jesus has the final victory. So he's been vindicated, he's been exalted, and now he's been declared victorious. And because he is victorious over all things, he is God. Let all of Israel, uh, Acts 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him what? Both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him both Lord, Kurion, Kurios. It's the word, the Greek word used uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the Yahweh word for God. So he has made him both God, Lord, he is God, and Christ, aha, the Messiah, the promised one, the Holy One, who would come from God himself and would be God himself. So here it is. This is what he's been proving all along. This is what he's been building to. This is what the whole, he's gone Psalm 16, he's gone to these words of David. He's, he's had this He's brought all this to this point right here. This is the climax of the sermon. Here's the proof. After you hear all this, he is not only the Christ, the Messiah, but he's also God himself. And then he says, whom you crucified. So that's the, that's the altar call. He does, a, he does a good altar call. 
You killed God. Now, we're not going to get to the response. We'll get to that next week, okay? We'll look at how they responded <laughs> next week. But I want us to look at four things real quickly here. As we look at these four things that Jesus did, these four proofs that he was the Messiah, I want us to look at what it's accomplished for us. How? Why is this resurrection important for us? So it's not in your notes there, but I'm going to put it on the screen. First thing I want us to see is that the vindication of Christ ensures that we too will not be abandoned and that we will be justified. The resurrection of Christ, this vindication of Christ, ensures, makes certain, that we too will not be abandoned and that we will be justified. Now when I say we, I'm talking about those who place their faith and their trust in Christ and have asked Him to be Lord, Savior, King, Ruler of their lives. Romans 4, verses 23-25. He's talking about righteousness here. And he says, It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How are we justified? And we were justified as Jesus took our punishment on the cross. We were justified before God, not because we deserve to go to heaven or we've done anything right or we've done anything that says, hey, yes, you're holy and you deserve to come to heaven. We've not been justified in that regard, but what Christ did on the cross, taking our punishment and giving us his perfection. And so I've always looked at justification where well, that happened on the cross, didn't it? But then you got this passage here that says that he delivered up our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now think what that means there is that he was raised up, like I said earlier, he was vindicated, that tomb was shown empty. In other words, when he was raised, God said, the sacrifice for your justification has been accepted. So he was raised for our justification. Raised so that we might know that we've been justified. If Jesus were still in the tomb and if his body were decaying, then we have no hope, no hope at all of being justified. How do we know that the sacrifice has been accepted? The only way we know that it was accepted and it was sufficient and it was completely sufficient for all our sins is that he rose again. God showed that tomb was empty and that the sacrifice had been accepted. We will be vindicated too, but not on the basis of our own holiness or our perfection as Christ was, but on the basis of his perfection. We are vindicated and justified in him. Next thing I want us to see is that the exaltation of Christ ensures that we too will receive glorified bodies and be forever with our Father. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Okay, that, that's resurrection language there. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. I love passages like that because they speak in the past tense. God has raised us up with him. has seated us. Really? Yes, because it's a certain fact. It's a certainty. Even though we don't have the present reality. Paul always talks that way. Past tense things that Jesus has done that are still yet to be completed. And so he has raised us up with him. And he has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know what? If we didn't have the resurrection, like I said, if you're here this morning and you doubt that the resurrection actually happened, you doubt that it's a historical fact, guess what? Then you have no certainty that you're going to be with God. You have no certainty that you're going to have a resurrected body. You have no certainty at all. 
The only certainty we have of that is the cross. And again, it's not because of us, it's because of him. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. It says, so it is, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body it is raised in spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And Paul's here talking about our body. We will be raised one day. We will receive imperishable bodies. The next thing I want us to see is that the victory of Christ over all things ensures that we too can have victory over sin and death. Colossians 3.1 If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand. If you've been raised with Christ, you belong to Jesus, then you've been raised with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, what does it say? Well, then seek the things that are above. Seek heavenly things. In other words, don't go after earthly things. Our appetites should be changed. How do we have victory over sin? This is so important for us. How do we have victory over sin? We don't have victory over sin. It's not like, I think it's the way a lot of people think of the Christian life. I'm going to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior so that I have eternity insurance. I know that I'm going to heaven. Now I've got this time between accepting Jesus to the point that I die, and I'm hoping it's going to be a long time. And so I've got this time between I accept and when I die, and I've got to live during that time. So how can I be a good Christian? Well, I'm going to put a bunch of processes in my life and a bunch of programs in my life, and I'm going to have a bunch of checkoff lists, and I'm going to make sure I do this and that, and we become drawn back into what we were set free from, which is legalism. The Bible says we've been set free from that. So how do we live this life between the moment we accept Jesus and the moment we're glorified with him in heaven? How do we, how do we live between those, those times? Well, we don't live by our own processes and our own legalistic structure we set up. We live by knowing that we've been raised in him, okay? And that resurrection power gives us new appetites. And so we should be asking for God to change our appetites to get away from what our dead self used to like and what our new self should like. And to be praying and asking him to change us and to change our appetites. Romans 6, verses 11 to 13. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. We've got to consider ourselves dead to sin. We've got to realize that sin no longer has any power over us. Sin is like a jail cell. It's been broken open. It's been burst open for us. And we can walk right out of it. But so many of us, so we're not locked in anymore. It doesn't have any power over us. The chains, the lock has been shattered. And so we step out in new freedom and in new life. But the problem with us is we still have this flesh that really likes that jail cell. It likes to walk back in. And we think, oh, no, I'm falling back into the same patterns or whatever. Well, you know what? It has no power over you. We may fall back into sinful patterns and mistakes, but it has no power over you. The lock is still broken. We just got to ask God to give us the grace to keep stepping back out of that jail cell and to stay out of it. And coming up with our own system, it's good to come up with spiritual disciplines. Yes, do that. Have spiritual disciplines. But understand the power is not in the spiritual discipline. The power is in the resurrection power of Christ who's giving you a new life. That's where the power is. To live a resurrected life. A life that has its mind set on the things above. Ephesians 1, 19-20. And what is this immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The power at work within us is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. In other words, the power that accomplished the most amazing miracle in history is the same power that's at work within us. So how do we tap into that? Through prayer and through surrender and submission to God and not putting confidence in anything outside that power of the Holy Spirit that God's given us. We don't put any, our confidence is only in God. So the victory that Christ has over all things also ensures that we too can have victory over sin and death. And we will have victory completely over sin and death once and for all when we die and when we're with him. Finally, the fact that Jesus is God, okay, the fact that Jesus is God means we know his work is finished and we are secure. 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his holy presence. We have complete confidence. Okay? If Jesus were just a prophet, as some people say, or a good teacher, and he did some stuff, and maybe even if he was raised from the dead, alright, and he was just a good prophet and a good teacher, that doesn't give me any confidence. If he's not something totally outside of who I am, and I'm man, I'm a person, if there isn't something outside of humanity that can accomplish the, the work that I can accomplish, which is to keep God's law perfectly, then I have no hope. I have no hope at all. But Jesus is that person. He is God. He has accomplished it. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And in 1 Peter, verse uh, 3 of chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's our hope. Not that we can earn resurrection from the dead. Not that we can earn the right to have presence with God. But what's the most common thing you hear if you ask someone on the street? What does it take to get to heaven? They'll simply say, I, I, it, my good deeds have to outweigh my bad deeds. And that's how I get to heaven. That's the most common conception of what it means. No. Your good deeds, one bad deed, did already outweigh all the good deeds you'll ever do. And therefore, we need a hope. And the only hope we have is that Jesus offered a sacrifice for our sins, that the sacrifice was accepted, that he was risen again, and therefore, we too, one day, if we place our faith in him, will be risen again. That's our hope. That's our hope that we'll be a present, have a presence with God. And that's the hope David had. That's the hope he had. I'm sure when David's writing that song, the Holy Spirit's inspired him. He's writing this song. He's writing these words. He's going, whoa, you know, he doesn't want to see corruption. He, he wants to be with God. God, I want to experience pleasure with you. I want to be with you forever. But he knows, I'm sure, as he's sitting there on his deathbed, and that body has already begun to decay because he's dying. His hope isn't in, well, I really hope that God's going to make me better. His hope is, no, God. You're going to, there's a descendant coming of mine. There's, there's someone coming. There's a descendant. You promised me there will be a descendant forever on the throne. There's a descendant coming who will reign forever. And so God, there's my hope. One day, I'll look to see you again. So David, like all the Old Testament prophets and all the Old Testament saints, I should say, and all the New Testament saints, is with God in spirit. 
Their spirit has gone to heaven to be with God, but their body, physical body, that will happen when Jesus comes back again and will receive those glorified bodies and will be with him forever with the glorified bodies. You see how important the resurrection is to our faith? Without it, we have to say what Paul says in verse 17 and 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, then there's no hope. We're all still in our sins. And there's no hope. And Christ has been raised. So today, for us in here, we know that there's hope. There's a beautiful, glorious Hope. So what I want us to do right now is to bow our heads and pray. Uh, Mark's going to do this in a couple of songs here in a second. But right now, as you're sitting there and you're praying, um, sometimes we just kind of take the resurrection story or the crucifixion story. We just kind of, just kind of gloss over these stories. We've heard them so many times. But we don't stop and think about how much it means, how important it is. So right now, if you're thinking about the resurrection, praise God in your heart as we're singing these songs. For what he has accomplished. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, and Lord, we just thank you that you are a great and glorious God, and that you had a plan from before time. You had a plan. And uh, God, you began to reveal that plan. From the moment mankind fell, the plan was already starting to reveal itself. From your first words to Adam and Eve after they had sinned, your plan began to reveal itself. Your plan from before time was that you would send a sacrifice, a substitute. And this substitute would, would take our sins, the punishment for our sins, but more than